Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Welcome to Mind Over Murder. I'm Kristen Dilley. And I'm Bill Thomas. And we are back with another episode in which we answer your burning, probing questions. Actually, that sounded awful. (laughs) We're back with another episode in which we answer listener questions about the Colonial Parkway murders case. Here with your resident expert, Bill Thomas. Well, come on now. We can both be experts, can't we? Yes, we are both experts. You're exactly right. I'm going to play the MC today, though, as we tend to do, and I'm going to posit questions from our listeners, both on our social media pages and from online discussion groups to Bill, and Bill is going to offer his expert opinion, and I'm going to weigh in with color commentary as we go. Sounds good. Are you going to be outing our listeners by name once again? Yeah, if there are names available, I will. And I know that there are some handles as well. So I will just use the preferred online handle. Okay, sounds good. All right. So our first question comes from Nancy on our Mind Over Murder Facebook page. Thank you, Nancy. She asks, are there any former partners, boyfriend or girlfriends, who are considered persons of interest? Were any known to be at the Yorktown pub around the time that Kathy and Becky were there that night? Well, let's back up for a second. Let's do these in reverse order. The Yorktown pub sighting of Kathy and Becky is unconfirmed. So the FBI did work very hard to try to backtrack on the potential sighting of two young women at the Yorktown pub, which is not far away from the Colonial Parkway, on the night of Thursday, October 9th, 1986, which is the night they believe that Kathy and Becky were killed. They've never been able to confirm that. So we can't say for sure that any particular friend of theirs was there the night that they went missing and are presumed murdered. 
If I remember correctly, there were even unconfirmed reports at Nick's Seafood Pavilion, for example. So we don't really know where they might have gone. And Nick's Seafood Pavilion, which is a restaurant, that's pretty much adjacent to the Yorktown Pub? Yeah, it's not there anymore, but we do know where it used to be. So, yeah, it's nearby, like, you know, not even a, a quarter of a mile's walk. Right. And both of these places are in Yorktown, which is a little bit downriver, mm-hmm. also alongside the York River. It's kind of pretty and kind of touristy. You, yes. you took me there a year or so back, pre-COVID. You know, remember when we used to be able to see each other in person? <laughs> Without masks, yes. Without masks. Oh, yes, Without there's masks. that too. Keeping in mind, we have this conversation. I'm in Connecticut and Kristen's in Virginia. Through the wonders of technology, we can have this conversation. So regarding potential persons of interest, keep in mind in the Colonial Parkway murders overall, there are at least 150 persons of interest. There are a number of people that have been looked at as potential suspects, including a lot of former boyfriends and former girlfriends of all of the people in the Colonial Parkway murders. So you would be looking at anybody who had a relationship with any of these young people. So they've absolutely been looked at. Now, what law enforcement people have told Kristen and me over the years is that you end up with a long list, the 150 plus names, and then a short list. And it moves from the less likely list, in other words, the full list of all of these different people they've looked at. And then they narrow it down to 10 or 15 is the number that we hear most often, potential suspects that are probably on the more likely list. I don't think that anyone who is a former boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever, are necessarily on the short list at this point. Although early on, my sister's first girlfriend was on the short list. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Dowski's previous college boyfriend was on the short list. And I think they were considered hot prospects at one time. But the investigators work the case and check things out. And if people have alibis or they're confirmed to have been in in other locations, I know that Becky Dowski's boyfriend was supposedly in Washington, D.C. the weekend of the murders. It appears then that people got moved onto the less likely list. So I think the investigators, from what they've told us, they definitely work relationships hard because it's possible this is stranger on stranger violence mm-hmm. or some of the Colonial Parkway murders could be a stranger on stranger incident. But the truth of the matter is, I think murder, most often, there's a reason for it as yeah. opposed to what I've likened to molecules bouncing off each other in space somewhere. They've absolutely looked at a lot of those relationships, whether it's work, school, family relationships, or romantic or sexual relationships. I think they've looked at a lot of those things. Naturally, people that have previous romantic relationships or entanglements or whatever are definitely part of that mix. Excellent question, Nancy. Thank you. All right, we have our next question, also from our Mind Over Murder Facebook page. This is from Les. Did the investigation ever extend to Yorktown refinery workers or Coast Guard? For those of you that are not familiar with the area, there is an oil refinery 
down the, and when I say down the road, what I technically mean is down the river from Yorktown. And there is also a Coast Guard station nearby. So those are not disparate groups pulled out of thin air. So did the investigation ever extend to Yorktown refinery workers or Coast Guard that we know of? Keep in mind, we don't know everything. The short answer is I don't think so. I've certainly never heard refinery workers mentioned. I have heard of suspects that work in the shipyard. Those are in Newport News, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. You can actually see them as you drive across the James River Bridge. You can clearly see, especially the larger ships like aircraft carriers and that sort of thing, you can see the biggest of the Navy ships in the distance in the shipyard. Shipyard workers have been mentioned. They've looked at a number of different suspects from various branches of the military. I don't recall anyone from the Coast Guard ever being mentioned. It's certainly a possibility. All right. Thank you, Les. Excellent question. All right, this one is from Julie. This came to us via our Mind Over Murder Facebook page. And she asked both of us, what is your theory of why Kathy's car was moved? It seems like that was a very high-risk move to drive even a mile or two with two deceased women in the car. Why not leave the car where the crime was committed unless you wanted to put some distance between yourself and the crime? You want to take that first, Bill? Sure. Julie, it's a great question, First of all, any theory that we've developed is something we've learned from talking to law enforcement and the experts from the Lover's Lane murders, television series, including Jim Clemente, Maureen O'Connell, Lonnie Coombs, and Dr. Laura Petler and others. Most of the Colonial Parkway murders seem to have a signature of the movement of vehicles post-mortem. So in, I think, all four examples, it appears that people are murdered and then vehicles, the vehicles they were traveling in, are moved post-mortem. This appears to be the case in Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski, incident number one. It appears to be the case in David Nobling and Robin Edwards at Ragged Island, case number two. You remember that that's the one where his pickup truck is parked in a way that it's nose in to the parking slot in this sandy parking area next to the James River Bridge. And his brother swears up and down that that was not David's habit to ever Mm -hmm. park nose in, that he was a truck guy and he always parked nose out. It's funny, I was at a grocery store the other day and... I watched a guy with a Ford pickup truck. This is way at the edge of the parking lot. And he did that whole little ritual of pulling the pickup truck in all the way at the edge of the lot, which means no one's going to hit his truck. And it's funny, this wasn't that fancy a pickup truck, but it's obviously this guy's pride and joy. It's almost like a long haul trucker thing that they do, which is you always park nose out, which makes it easier to pull out of the space. (laughs) And I guess it's also a thing that if there was ever any difficulty in starting the truck, that it would be easier to attach jumper cables or whatever. I mean, it's a truck thing. I'm more of a car guy than than a truck guy. So in incident number two, it appears that David's truck is positioned by someone other than David. In incident number three, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley 
Keith's car is found along the York River about a mile away from Kathy and Becky's car was found, and they're not in it. Once again, it appears that someone may have driven their car and parked it in such a way that whatever happened to Keith and Sandy has happened, and then they're moving the car after the fact. And then I think without question, in incident number four, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer up at I-64, it appears that they may have encountered someone at the eastern bound rest stop when they were heading towards Virginia Beach, and yet the car is found on the opposite side of I-64, which is a divided highway. There's a mirror image rest stop on the west side, westbound, and the car is found aimed in the opposite direction from the direction of travel. So once again, it appears that whatever happened to Daniel and, and Anna, they were taken to the hunt club, probably killed there, and then the vehicle is then moved back in the opposite direction of travel. So this movement of the cars seems to be a signature. Now, specifically, Julie's question was regarding Kathy's car. Well, what the FBI agents have explained to me is that they think that Kathy and Becky were killed elsewhere on the Colonial Parkway, and then they're moving the car to create time, space, and distance between Mm -hmm. wherever the murder took place and wherever the car is found. I think they're trying to create confusion. And remember, if the law enforcement agencies investigating the murders don't actually know where the murder took place, that limits their ability to look for evidence in the original location. So if it's, let's say, a mile down the road and law enforcement doesn't find that other location, then that limits their ability to search for blood, weapons, or tire tracks, or other evidence that might allow them to draw some conclusions about what took place or perhaps even identify an offender. Definitely. I think you got it 100% on the nose there. I want to actually speak to something that Julie said. It seems like a very high-risk move to drive even a mile or two with deceased women in the car. I agree with you. I think that to those of us that would never in our right minds consider murder to be an activity that we would be involved in ever, it seems like a very high-risk move. But I have a feeling that for this offender, this is probably something that he would not have you know, really thought twice about. It became necessity for him to do. I also want to mention, too, as somebody who drives the parkway on the regular, mainly during the day, but I have been on it at night, it is very, very lightly patrolled. There are days when I drive home on the parkway from school where I do not see a park ranger or marine police or base police or anything else. I mean, it, it, it's pretty rare to actually see someone out there. And then at night, I will not drive it at night. My boyfriend will. So I'll, drive, I'll go with him in the car if he's driving, but I will not go. Like, I will not drive myself, but it is even more lightly patrolled at night. I do not recall a time on the parkway ever when I've seen a policeman out there. So considering how lightly patrolled the parkway actually is, if it is a local who's familiar with the parkway, I don't think they would consider it a high-risk move to move a car with two dead women in it a mile down the road. I think they would just consider it to be expedient, and it's something that they needed to do. So I I do understand your point, Julie, but I think that for this offender, he probably would not have considered it a high-risk move. I think he would have just felt, oh, it's par for the course and no one's going to catch me anyway. We think most of these murders took place between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. And as we've talked about regarding the Colonial Parkway, this road is extremely lightly patrolled. 
So it isn't that risky a maneuver, as you're pointing out, Kristen, to drive with two dead bodies in a car. The other thing is a related question came up in one of these online forums that I participate in where we discuss the Colonial Parkway murders and other cases. Someone asked, why wouldn't he just leave Becky's body in the front seat as opposed to placing her body in the back seat, which is how it was found, and Kathy was in the hatchback. I thought about it, and I just thought to myself, I don't think he wanted to sit next to a dead body. I mean, admittedly, he or they killed two people and placed their bodies inside my sister's car and then drove the car away. But assuming for a second that it's a sole offender and not two people, I think he might have just put her in the back seat because he didn't necessarily want to sit next to someone. And obviously, he's just killed these two people, so he holds them in great disdain on some level. So he puts Kathy in the way back, as we used to call it, and then puts Becky in the back seat, starts the Honda up, and drives it away. And you could see that potentially happening in several of these examples. But this movement of cars after the murders have taken place, seems to be one of the signatures in the Colonial Parkway murders. Excellent question, Julie. Thank you. All right. The next question is, uh, it's another one from Les, actually, on our Mind Over Murder page. Les asks, was a fuel can recovered from the scene where the car was dumped? He's talking about Kathy and Becky's car in this example, my sister's Honda. That's the only time where fuel is used. And the answer is no, that the can of kerosene and or diesel fuel, they say diesel fuel most of the time these days, but 30-something years ago, they sometimes said kerosene. It appears that the offender brought those items with him and took them away. So he brought, in this example, rope, knives, restraints of some type, fuel, and matches or cigarettes. He made an, an attempt to set the car on fire and then took almost all those items away with him at the end of the process. There's a short piece of rope left on the back of my sister Kathy's neck, which may have actually been cut during the throat cutting exercise. I've seen pictures of it. It's an inch or two long, and it was up under her long red hair, I think. It might have been a mistake that he left it there. He brings these tools, if you'll pardon the expression, Mm -hmm. with him uses them, and then takes them away, including the fuel can. Which, of course, has led to a lot of speculation from people over the years as to, well, who carries along with them kerosene or diesel, rope, knives, and various other things, which, you know, has led to any number of different suppositions. Could be a waterman, could be a tow truck driver, could be somebody who does construction, Am I leaving anything out there, Bill? I feel like I've covered the major prospects. Or a murderer who's intending to murder someone that Mm -hmm. night. And and this is a murder kit. Yeah, yeah. As our friend Jim Clemente, profiler to the stars, would say, you know, for somebody who brings along their material in, in a murder kit, this is an organized offender. This is somebody who has taken the time to really think through the process and to bring their items with them and then to take them away again. Mm hmm. Point of, of clarification there, Bill, actually, for you. When you described the piece of rope that was up under Kathy's hair, was that rope more like clothesline or was it rope like you would use in construction? Or like, have yeah. you seen a picture of the rope? Do you know what it looked like? I've seen a picture of the rope, but remember, sometimes the pictures are black and white and sometimes they're in color. Mm-hmm. I've seen a picture of the rope. It's usually described 
in the autopsy and elsewhere as nylon rope. And I'm not sure if it's white nylon rope or yellow nylon rope, but it's light colored. I think my recollection is the photograph is black and white. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, Les, for that question. All right. Next, we have, uh, I don't know if this is really a question so much as an observation from someone who has very clearly taken their profiling classes. And this is from a person whose screen name is Mr. Marple. This is on one of the online discussion boards that you frequent, Bill. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and read Mr. Marple's entire comment, and then I'm going to let you kind of freeform vamp it from, from there. Mr. Marple writes, let's back up a moment and look at the type of profile that the FBI and other agencies have built up for an organized serial killer. According to this profile, a serial killer is a white male aged 25 to 45 years at the time of the crime, has average to above average intelligence and is well-educated, is married or has a partner and is sexually competent, is attractive looking and can be charming when he wants to be. He uses a ruse to capture his victims, often relying on gaining their sympathy to put them off guard. Think Bundy. Is employed, is in skilled employment, but has poor work performance has a high birth order, first or second born in his family, is very orderly and highly organized, also cunning and controlled, is not insane but shows no remorse for his crimes, and kills members of his own race. Bill, do you want to just kind of go from there? I'm not an expert on profilers or profiling, but I have had the privilege of meeting a number of FBI profilers and spending a fair amount of time with Jim Clemente, of course, who was on our Lover's Lane Murders television series. And then Jim and I have spent hours together talking about the Colonial Parkway murders. This is consistent with everything I've heard and read about an organized serial killer of this type or an organized killer of this type. So I think Mr. Marple's on the right track. I'm aware of who some of the suspects are in the Mm -hmm. Colonial Parkway murders, and this profile does fit a number of them. So it is very interesting. Some of the work that was done on profiling killers of this type goes back 30, 40, uh, 50 years. 50 years, yeah. To... Uh, John Douglas, Robert Ressler, and other FBI experts. A lot of these people who are ultimately arrested for these crimes do fit this profile. And Bill, we have had people ask us before if the BAU has ever actually taken a look at this case. Are you at liberty to discuss whether or not the BAU has ever looked at this case? Well, all I can tell you is what the agents have told me. Apparently, the case was profiled 30 years ago and then was reprofiled in the last few years. So they've looked at it at least twice. And then you and I have met a number of people mm-hmm. who've attended the FBI Academy who've worked this case or studied the Colonial Parkway murders as part of the curriculum that they studied at FBI Quantico. So I know it's been profiled at least twice, including fairly recently in the last couple of years. I was on the phone with a conference call with a guy yesterday who was asking me if I knew who profiled it, and that I don't know. But I do know that the BAU has studied the Colonial Parkway murders very carefully. You're listening to Mind Over Murder. We'll be right back after these messages. One of the most frequent questions we're asked here at Mind Over Murder is, 
How can I help? Thanks to Othram, a leading forensic DNA testing lab for law enforcement, you can get involved and help solve real cases. If you have tested at a consumer genetics company, you can contribute your data to dnasolves.com. The process is easy and confidential. Just two simple steps. Your DNA might be the missing piece that helps solve the identity of an unknown person. Then Mind Over Murder will highlight cases Othram is working on to seek your crowdfunding support for DNA testing to help solve these cold cases. Upload your DNA profile to dnasolves.com. It's easy, free, and confidential. Then join Mind Over Murder as we help families find answers with Othram and dnasolves.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Mind Over Murder. And it is interesting on John Douglas's Facebook page, which I do frequent, he had actually been asked before, like uh, by someone, not us, (laughs) completely unrelated (laughs) to the case. He was asked, had he studied the Colonial Parkway murders? And I recall that he said, no, he had not. He had heard of it, right. but he had not profiled it. And of course, my first inclination was to jump in and say, well, would you like to? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> Which please. I got no response. <laughs> but I know that people that studied with Mr. Douglas yes. did profile the case because I know it goes back that far so that it's probably that next generation of profilers that probably worked this case 34 years ago, you know, give or take when the Colonial Parkway murders were happening. Yes. And Mr. Douglas, if you are listening, we would love your insights and inputs. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. We'll do a podcast with with John yes, Douglas. yes, and we we would we would love to like that is definitely one of our higher um, goals for this podcast is to have John Douglas and his writing partner Mark Olshaker on the podcast. So John, Mark, if you're listening, please come on the podcast. We'd love to pick your brain <laughs> <laughs> about everything. And now that we're going to be free to travel soon, we'll we'll come to you. How's that? Yeah, absolutely. Sure will. Let's see. So we have a question here from Catherine. We do need a little bit of clarification on this point that was related to her question. So Catherine asks, was the nearby Overlook Park that Bill mentioned ever included in a search? And so probably we need to clarify the Overlook Park component. So I think we're blending two things, Catherine. Kathy's car, the Honda Civic in case number one, was found at the Cheatham Annex Overlook which is along the York River. Cheatham Annex, which the site overlooks, is a site a mile or more away in the distance, kind of across the surface of the York River. And it's part of the Naval Weapons Station. And they load explosives, including nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. aboard Navy ships. And, of course, the reason it's a mile or more away is because... (laughs) Obviously, loading ammunition 
and explosives aboard Navy ships is kind of a dangerous undertaking. You want to be very, very careful about that. Interestingly, the ships, which you can see in the distance from the Overlook, are actually on a very long pier that sticks way out and then kind of turns to the side, which almost puts them in the middle of the river. And this is all done very deliberately to place the ships as far away from the rest of the base as possible. You can see the Navy ships in the distance. The park that I talked about is called the Ringfield Plantation, and that's a closed picnic area that's a bit closer to the Cheatham Annex facility. That's a possible location for where Kathy and Becky could have been attacked. Now, we've never found a site there or anywhere else that we can say definitively this is where Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski were murdered. That's about a little less than a mile away. I think it's nine-tenths of a mile away mm-hmm. from the Cheetah Mannix Overlook where the car was found, which, as we've talked about before, is quite close to the surface of the Colonial Parkway, only about 50 feet away from the road surface. Yeah. So it's very close to the road. And although we have talked about the fact that the road is lightly patrolled, it still seems very risky to me to attack and then go through this elaborate multiple-step process that we've talked about in terms of what happened to Kathy and Becky with the being restrained and the rope and the knives and ultimately the diesel fuel and this attempt to set the car on fire. I mean, by my calculation, we're spending a half an hour or more, maybe longer, with Kathy and Becky and then ultimately with the bodies and the car. The whole thing seems crazy to try to do right there next to the Colonial Parkway in this shallow little Cheatham Annex overlook. On the other hand, this other site less than a mile away, Ringfield Plantation, is a much more secluded private location. I estimate there's a looping paved road that goes into the Ringfield Plantation and probably goes around in a circle. It's probably a mile or more long, and it's unique in that there's only one way in and one way out. Yeah. That's a site, by the way, with very pretty views of the York River. And of Queens Creek at the other end. Right. And I know Kathy absolutely loved the water. Remember, she's in the Navy. Um, She's always been fascinated by the ocean. There is another spot called Belfield Plantation, which is less than a mile in the other direction from Cheetah Mannix. And it's very pretty and wooded, Mm -hmm. also closed later by the National Park Service. Belfield Plantation doesn't have the water views that Ringfield Plantation does. The FBI has often stated that they believe that it's possible that Kathy and Becky were attacked at Ringfield Plantation, murdered there, and then, as we talked about a few minutes ago, then the car is moved from the Ringfield Plantation location to the Cheetah Mannix Overlook, where it's ultimately found three days later. So... The confusion is probably, on my part, I probably wasn't as clear about the names of these various places. Again, nothing's definitive except the fact that the car is found at Cheetah Mannix, but the working theory is that they think that Kathy and Becky were murdered elsewhere on the Colonial Parkway and then the car was moved. I think at some point over the next couple of days, I will try to go out there and get some photos to the best of my ability 
to post up on our website so that you guys can actually see this is the area that we're talking about here. Because I know that we do have people who are not local and would never have had occasion to be on the Colonial Parkway. And the geography of the parkway is, it's, it's very interesting. And especially the areas that are closed in particular. So we will try to get some photos for everybody so that we can uh, make this a little clearer. All right. Thank you, Catherine. Excellent question. Okay. The English teacher is going to call this a mini essay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mini essay. It's very, very well thought out comments, but it's going to take me a little bit to read through. So I'll try to do this in bits and let you respond to it as we go. Okay. Um, And and I I know this commenter and uh, he's a very smart guy and very thoughtful. So let's see what he's got to say. Yeah, but we're going to have to parse it a little bit. Um, Okay, so this is is from the handle Mustang Man. I'm just not buying into the idea that Kathy Thomas Honda Civic was on the parkway for the whole three days before a jogger saw it over the embankment next to the York River. If a jogger was close enough to spot the Honda, then anyone who parked near that spot would have also seen what the jogger saw. We'll go ahead and stop right there for a minute. Do you want to respond? Well, Mustang Man and I have debated this, and I'm going to disagree respectfully with Mustang Man here. I've seen the crime scene photos, and you and I have spent plenty of time at Cheetah Mannix on all of these sites. And I think it is more than plausible that Kathy's Honda Civic was pushed over the edge at the Cheetah Mannix and rolled down towards the surface of the York River and got caught in underbrush. Remember, the car is fairly short cars were pretty small back then and it's probably a 15 to 20 foot drop down towards the surface of the water the underbrush which was cut back years later after a hurricane if i'm not mistaken yeah but it's still massive yeah massive amounts of it but it was very very thick and mm-hmm. so when you see the crime scene photos the car had been pushed over the edge and had rolled down it hadn't hit the surface of the water, but then the underbrush kind of swallowed the car up. As a matter of fact, the first responder who was a park ranger from the reports we've seen wasn't even able to open the doors of the car because of the thick underbrush. And I think the car went over the edge, rolled down towards the river, and that took it out of line of sight from the Colonial Parkway where the National Park Service rangers would have been driving by in standard issue cop cars back then. They weren't driving SUVs, so they weren't even as high as you'd be in an SUV. So they're driving along in like Chevys and Fords, you know, the sort of big cop car type vehicles. I think it's actually quite possible that you could drive past this site multiple times and not see the car kind of over the embankment. And it's not until Sunday afternoon, early evening when a guy sometimes he's described as a passerby, sometimes he's described as a jogger. He's closer to the edge of the grassy area where people would typically drive. There's no curb there. There's a curb there now, but back then there were no curbs. So you could actually drive around on the grass a fair amount. He's out running or walking along the edge of the river. He looks down and sees the car. And then remember, this is a pre-internet, pre-cell phone environment. He's then got to go to the ranger station or the visitor center. He's got to get to a phone. There are no cell phones. He's got to get to a landline phone to call in what he thinks is a traffic accident. In other words, the car is driven over the edge. So Mustang and I 
might have to agree to disagree here. I think it is quite plausible that Kathy's Honda could have been stuck there for almost three days from Thursday night to Sunday evening. Here's our next bit. I can't believe law enforcement did not examine the broken branches of the brush to determine how long they had been broken. It's easy to tell if a branch had just been broken or if it had been broken three days earlier. Also, it had rained, and there were still traces of diesel kerosene fuel on the grass leading to or from the car. Would there still be fuel after it rained? Actually, I'm not. Do we know that it had rained, Bill? Uh, I'm we, not sure where this information is coming from. Actually, according to the weather reports that I've read and the pictures of the tire tracks and so on that I've seen in the crime scene photos, it had rained. So the ground was wet and quite muddy. Okay. So he wants to know, would there still be traces of diesel fuel available on the grass after it rained? I'm not sure. It's not an unreasonable question, but it's funny. Mustang Man is kind of operating on some assumptions that I don't necessarily agree with. I am fairly certain they would have taken a look at the branches. They aren't even able to get a look at the car until after a tow truck arrives and pulls the Honda back up onto the flat grassy area where it had started out, and then and only then are they even able to open the car and then make a determination that the two people inside the car are not trapped, but they're actually dead and that this is a homicide and not a traffic accident. I can't say I agree with Mustang Man in that Mustang's operating on the assumption that they didn't take a look at these things. They probably did, but if It had rained. I know it was wet from the pictures and from a description of what the weather was like. I think they took a look at some of these things, but I'm not sure that led them anywhere. I know they've discussed with with me that there were matches and cigarettes found, and it does appear there was a repeated attempt to set the car on fire, which I think he gets into in the next section. Yeah. So uh, cigarette butts and matches were also found at the scene and no description of them is given by law enforcement. Cigarette butts swell up if they're exposed to water, as do matches. If the cigarette butts and matches do not show any sign of being wet, this means the car may not have been on the parkway for three days. It seems like it's a reasonable supposition. Reasonable assumption. Now, Mustang and I have debated this one on this website where we discussed this case and others. Mustang believes the car was not there for three days. I believe, and I think I have more information available to me, even though it's limited, I believe they were there for three days with Kathy and Becky's bodies inside the car and the car pushed down the embankment for almost three days. Mustang believes that is not plausible. And I have no information about the condition of the cigarette butts or the matches. I know they exist because I've been told by FBI agents working the case that they exist, but they have not said anything to me about, you know, wet or dry. Yeah. Keep in mind, too, this is just a you know reminder that Bill does not have all of this information as a family member because investigators do not regularly give out those sort of investigational details to family members in open cases. So we wish that we had some of this information, but this isn't something necessarily that law enforcement would be sharing with the family or uh, with other investigators. And as we've talked about, I can ask all the questions I want, but the FBI will not answer those questions. They'll just say no. And believe me, (laughs) I've asked a lot of questions and pushed very hard, but they are not necessarily going to answer all the questions that I have. So I can ask away and they just sort of listen and nod and say, we're not going to tell you that. 
It is what it is. It is interesting that people are taking such a hard look and a deep dive into this, but I also think that there are a lot of questions that until this case is solved, we are just never going to have the answers to. Mm -hmm. Um, And even then, we might never have the details that people want to get into. I'm so glad that people are willing to do just this very, very deep dive into it. But I think it's just a good idea to caution people that it is entirely possible that even if this case is solved, you're not necessarily going to get the answers that you want. So you may end up kind of disappointed on those fronts. Right. Um, but I, I mean, think- these are good, good things to bring up. All right. Our next question is from John, and it is with regards to whether or not there is any DNA available. Well, the answer is Yes. But our challenge with DNA evidence in the Colonial Parkway murders is that we're dealing with evidence that's 30 to 34 years old. It has aged. It might not have been handled with as much care in 1986 to 1989 as it would be in 2021. Remember, DNA hadn't even come out of the lab in 1986 when the Colonial Parkway murders started. So the way crime scenes were handled and the way crime scenes were secured or not secured was very, very different back then. So we have a lot of challenges from a forensic standpoint, which is older samples, blended samples. That is, we've talked about this before, the first responders to Kathy and Becky's example And Keith and Sandy's example, these are two where I know all of the details, they actually climbed inside the cars. You would never do that in 2021, but in 86 to 89, that's how things were done. But as a result, that means that there's all kinds of additional DNA inside those cars, for example, that has nothing to do with anything in terms of suspects, but it becomes a real challenge scientifically to sort all that stuff out. So you've got old samples and blended samples and somewhat compromised crime scenes. It's nobody's fault. It's just the way things were handled back then. Yes to DNA, but it is a real challenge to extract potential offender DNA from this mix that's presented. And because we do get this question in relation to DNA fairly often, um, and it's still a good idea to revisit it whenever possible, um, Bill, go ahead and discuss why we cannot get C.C. Moore, Parabon, Colleen Fitzpatrick, or any other genetic genealogist or forensic scientist on the case for this particular one. Well, we don't control the evidence. The FBI controls the evidence in two of the cases because they happened inside the National Park. That's Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski and Keith Call and Cassandra Haley. Those are FBI cases. And then the Robin Edwards, David Knobling case at Ragged Island and the Anna Maria Phelps, Daniel Lauer case and I-64, those are Virginia State Police cases. They control the evidence. They decide, not the families. Now, we've made requests. We've discussed it as recently as within the last few days. Yeah. But the agencies decide what tests will be conducted and by whom. And this is, um, it's very frustrating. There's been some significant banging of heads behind the scenes about this. 
we get asked this question all the time, Kristen, as you're saying, why can't name your favorite expert here? And I mean, interestingly, we've gone out over the last couple of years and we've met with almost all of these experts, all the top people in the field and learned a tremendous amount, which helps arm us for discussion and sometimes debate with our friends in law enforcement as we try to move this case forward. Ultimately, we're not in control. And this is true for our families, as well as families in any other unsolved case, law enforcement controls the evidence, not the families. Speaking very frankly, if we controlled the evidence, we would have done these tests years ago and we would have sent the evidence to some of these top experts for their analysis. You get into all kinds of really frustrating debate, even regarding cost, and mm-hmm. I had I had a significant discussion with the FBI special agent within the last week about costs being a problem. And this discussion is ongoing. I'm sure you're starting to pick up the frustration that we feel when we're discussing with these agencies that we want to see advanced forensic testing done and forensic genealogy to be part of that mix. It's really, really difficult to impress upon law enforcement the need to prioritize cold cases like ours. And then, of course, in relationship to that, generally when we tell people we do not control the evidence, the next question that comes up is, well, who can we talk to about that? Can we write letters? (laughs) Can we petition? Can we do a change.org? And then the other question, of course, that we've had, and you and I were kind of joking about the other day, was can we crowdfund this? Um, like, can, can we crowdfund to have the testing done? Um, so do, do you want to address both of those here very quickly while we're on it? We're open to it. We have to get law enforcement to agree to allow the test to move forward. We're not done discussing this. We're not done debating this. We will continue this conversation but that's probably all I can say right now. And for people who maybe want to write a petition, write a letter, what would you say in response to those people? Let the families lead that process. We are in discussions about how we can put more pressure on the FBI and the Virginia State Police to move these cases forward. We just don't want to randomly start writing to members of Congress, for example. We want to do this in a way that makes sense. And so we... We'll continue to pursue this and we will circle back with our listeners when there's an appropriate time and a role for those listeners to play regarding Over Murder this discussion. is a production of Absolute We do Zero hear and appreciate and your comments, the indignation, the outrage on some people's part. Believe me, we, we hear Pamela it, we feel it, and we really appreciate it. Music is by and we know that there are so many of you that Blind want Over to Murder do is distributed something. in partnership with Crawl but Space as, Media. As Bill said, it is important to let the families kind of take the lead on this. But we do appreciate every time someone asks, what can I do? How can I help? On Facebook. Very, very much appreciated on that end. Thank you so much for listening to Mind Over Murder. If you do have questions about any of the cases involved in the Colonial Parkway Murders series or about the cases of Laurie Ann Powell and Brian Pettinger, please do leave them on our social media platforms. Or on Bill's Twitter page, he needs some spamming, so please feel free to send him (laughs) as much information as you care to. Uh, And do check out our various web pages, mindovermurderpodcast.com and colonialparkwaymurders.com. 
Thank you so much for listening to Mind Over Murder. We'll see you next time. <laughs>